Do you have questions about life and faith and God that remain unanswered? Do you feel like the Christian cliches are shallow and don't really get to the truth? Is this whole Christian thing rather uncertain for you? And, and does that uncertainty exclude you from true spirituality? My name is Skip Collins, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore concepts of life and faith and the Bible and Christianity. We'll challenge our traditional views and ideas, which at times will probably make us a little uncomfortable, but hopefully we'll come out on the other side more connected to our faith, to God, and to what we believe. So let's jump in to deeply spiritual, but rather uncertain. Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in today. I have been blown away by the response that I've received over the past few weeks. It has been really fantastic. Thank you to everyone that encouraged me or asked questions or just said hi. It really has been great. Thank you. Please do me a favor if you can and share this with your friends and family if you think they will enjoy it or if it might be helpful to them in some way. That would certainly be helpful to me and I would really appreciate it. So last week we spoke about some of the extremely violent images of God that we see in the Old Testament. Images that seem to completely contradict the character of God that we see in Jesus. If you are still working to come to terms with where you land on all of this, I get it. It's really difficult stuff. Remember that weird story that we spoke about in episode chapter 3 where Jacob wrestles with God all night long? It's in Genesis 32 if you want to go back and read it. But Jacob fights with this angel or this force or God or whatever you want to call it, but they fight all night long. And Jacob doesn't give up to the point where the angel basically cheats and uses his supernatural power and messes up Jacob's hip. But Jacob still keeps fighting. The passage says that God blessed Jacob because he fought with God and won. But did anybody actually win? Not really. Jacob just outlasted him. I mean, Jacob just wouldn't give up. Up. It wasn't about the end of the wrestling match. It was about the wrestling itself. Or if I can mix my metaphors, it wasn't about the destination. It was about the journey. This may sound crazy, but I don't care where you land on this stuff. What I care about is that you're on the journey. And let me take it a step further, if I can be so bold. I don't know that God cares where you land. And that statement might be a little over the top, and maybe he does to some extent. But my, my point is this. The goal of our faith is not to believe correctly. But let's imagine for a minute that that was the goal of our faith. That what God wanted for us all was to understand and believe exactly the same. So God gets together with the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he says, guys, we have a problem. People are believing all sorts of nonsense, and I don't know what we're going to do. So the Son pipes up, and he says, hey, why don't we write a book? 
We'll put it all down in writing so they know exactly who we are and they have all the instructions they need for life. And the Holy Spirit gets all excited. Yeah, we can make it kind of like an owner's manual for Christians. Okay, that's my weird imagination and sense of humor. But if that's what God set out to do in the first place, I'm sorry, but he did a lousy job of it. Clearly, the Bible isn't that clear on doctrine, or we would all believe exactly the same. See, my point is this. I think God wants us to wrestle and to think and to work through this stuff. God wants us to be on the journey. That's always been his plan. Anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because that's next week's subject. So um, let's get into what I want to talk about today. While there are clearly pictures of the character of God that don't square with what we see in Jesus, the Old Testament is full of some very clear pictures that line up beautifully with who Jesus is. Let me take you to the first verse of Hebrews. I've talked about this before, but let me repeat it for those that may have not listened to that particular podcast. Hebrews 1.1 begins like this. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. I love how J.B. Phillips translates this verse. God who gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truth in the words of the prophets has now at the end of this present age given us the truth in the Son. Over and over in the Old Testament, while we have passages that are difficult to understand, but there are also some amazing glimpses of truth, glimpses of truth that is consistent with who we see in Jesus. Let's start with the story of Jonah. You mean the guy that gets swallowed by the fish. Yeah, that guy. But we're not going to worry too much about the absurdness of a man getting swallowed by a fish. I want to focus on the way God deals with the people of Nineveh. In the beginning of the story, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. God is concerned with what is going on there, but Jonah says, forget it, I'm not going, and he catches a boat in the other direction. Then there is a storm that happens, and the ship is about to capsize, and so Jonah tells the crew, this is all my fault. Throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. So that is what they did, and the storm stopped. Meanwhile, the big fish shows up and swallows up Jonah and then spits him out on the shore three days later. So many people stop the story there because they just can't buy the bit about the fish. So let me release you from that. It doesn't matter if you believe that this is a myth or that it really happened because the point of the story isn't that a man got swallowed by a fish. This can be a myth or it can be real, and the point of the story is just as powerful. So hang with me. Once Jonah dries off, he heads to Nineveh this time. He starts to tell the people the error of their ways. 
He explains that there are consequences to their actions and the consequences are not pretty. And so what do the people do? They repent. They change their minds, all of them from the king right on down. And at the end of chapter 3, it says that God saw their repentant hearts, which stopped the calamity that might have happened. Now, let me read the beginning of chapter 4. But all this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Jonah is ticked off because God didn't wipe these people off the face of the earth. He was quite happy to accept God's forgiveness for himself, but then he is angry when God treats somebody else with the same grace and the same forgiveness. Back in 2011, Rob Bell released his book, Love Wins. I'm sure many of you have read it, but if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. He put a chapter in the book about hell, that caused quite an uproar in the evangelical world, to say the least. He wrote of another way to look at the passages of hell in the Bible and asked the question, what if our view of eternal punishment is wrong? The evangelical world went berserk. They accused him of being a universalist, and things got really ugly. I remember when I first read it. I thought, I don't know if Rob is right here, but I really hope he is. But some people, man, they got so angry. To think that God would forgive everybody? No, that's just too much. I remember asking people at the time why it bothered them so much. Wouldn't it be great if nobody went to hell? But that, my friends, is a subject for another time. Maybe someday when I'm feeling incredibly brave, we'll talk about that, but not right now. Back to Jonah. See, I think the Jonah thing is the same thing. Jonah's saying, I deserve grace, but those Ninevites deserve destruction and annihilation. But I think this story of Jonah is such a beautiful picture of who God is. See, what is clear in the narrative is that Jonah wants God. Jonah expects God to be harsh and judgmental. But what if God isn't like that at all? What if God's hope and desire was not for Jonah to go and pronounce judgment, but for Jonah to beg the people to turn from their ways? They were headed down a path that would be hardship and destruction, and God was trying to save them all along, not judge them. It reminds me so much of John 3.17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. That's a different message from one that many of us have heard that said that God has this predetermined idea of who will be in and who will be out, who will be saved, and who will be condemned. 
There's a story in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus is outside of Jerusalem. He's up on a hill where he can look down and see the entire city. He sees a city that is headed toward destruction. They've made bad choices, and the consequences to those choices are not good. He doesn't call down judgment. He doesn't call down fire to destroy the city. He weeps. His heart is broken. God is not looking at you and waiting to pass judgment. Man, if he were, we would all be in such trouble. His desire for all of us is wholeness, joy, and peace. But if you're like me, there are times I make bad choices. I say things, I do things that are destructive both for me and for those around me. But what is God's response? He weeps and he begs me to move in a different direction. Our next story is about a woman called Ruth. The short story is that her father-in-law passed away, and so now her mother-in-law, whose name is Naomi, is left as a widow. Then Ruth's husband dies, and so both Naomi and Ruth are left as widows. Now, in that time in history, and in a culture as patriarchal as Israel was, this was a really bad thing. It was horrible, actually. So Ruth and Naomi were absolutely on their own with no way to support themselves. One day, Ruth was out basically begging for food, and she meets this guy by the name of Boaz, who she finds out later was related to Naomi's late husband. So he was family, albeit a little distance, but he was family. And in the culture, a family member could become the kinsman redeemer for a woman that was widowed, so for Ruth and Naomi. It meant that he could marry Ruth and therefore redeem her as well as Naomi. Through his sacrifice, he could do for them that which they could not do for themselves. And that's what he does. Ruth and Boaz marry, and then they have a son named Obed, who is the great-grandfather of King David. So we see this beautiful picture of redemption and sacrifice and love. But in my opinion, that's not even the coolest part of the story. Boaz's mother was a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab is spoken about in the book of Joshua. She was a prostitute. So in the biological line of this prostitute Rahab comes Boaz and then Obed and then King David, and eventually Jesus himself. Talk about redeeming brokenness. 
This woman, Rahab, who was a victim of abusive men, isn't looked on by God as vile or evil. God doesn't ask her what she was wearing that enticed these men, but instead he gives her a son who is very likely conceived under horrible circumstance, but this son becomes a man of such character and integrity that he is willing to sacrifice to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Does that story sound familiar to you at all? It's not a surprise to me that Jesus hung out with prostitutes. If you've ever watched Jesus Christ Superstar, and I know I'm dating myself now, but if you have watched it, you've seen the scene where Mary Magdalene anoints Jesus' feet. By the way, if you, I, gotta, I just got to say this. If you haven't seen the newest version of Jesus Christ Superstar, it was done on NBC Live, um, you really should see it. Um, if you're old enough to remember it, or even if you've never heard of it, go watch it. John Legend plays Jesus, and it's amazing. Uh, anyway, it's, sorry I get excited about this stuff. Here's the deal. Mary Magdalene is a prostitute who anoints Jesus' feet with oil, with tears running down her face and wipes his feet with her hair. My guess is that Jesus is the first man that ever treated her with dignity, who didn't look at her with disgust or contempt, the first man who looked past her brokenness and really saw her. Probably the same thing goes for the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus encountered or the woman that was brought to Jesus caught in idolatry because that is who God is. You are not defined by your brokenness or your failure or your abuse. God sees way beyond that, and he loves you for who you are exactly as you are. You don't have to change a thing. Story number three starts in Genesis chapter 15. God makes this covenant with Abraham. He promises that he and Sarah will have a son. But Abraham and Sarah decide that God is moving way too slow, and so they take matters into their own hands. So there was a custom in that culture that if a woman couldn't get pregnant, then her husband would sleep with one of the servant ladies and get her pregnant, so hopefully she could produce a son. So that's what he did, and that's what happened. Ishmael was born to Hagar the servant. But then Sarah and Hagar didn't get along very well. Oh, gee, what a surprise, right? Eventually, Sarah falls pregnant, and it could have been as much as five years later. But Sarah falls pregnant and has Isaac. And as Isaac grows up, he and Ishmael, his older half-brother, start to play together. Well, one day, Sarah sees Ishmael making fun of Isaac, and she doesn't like it one bit. And so they send Sarah and Ishmael away into the desert with nothing but a little food and water. But God had made a promise to Hagar that Ishmael's descendants would become a great nation. And that is exactly what happened. In fact, 
In Islam, it is believed that Ishmael was a direct descendant of Muhammad himself. God's promises fulfilled. But this whole story reads a little bit like a soap opera. This guy sleeps with this woman who works for him, and then she gets pregnant, and then his wife also gets pregnant, and they all live in the same house, and they don't get along, and it's truly a mess. You think God would be pretty ticked off at all of this. Let's face it, Abraham and Sarah totally messed up. They did exactly the opposite of what God had instructed them to do. God said, here is what I want you to do. And they basically said, forget it. We'll do it our own way. Then when they did, surprise, surprise, it's all screwed up. So why isn't God angry? Why doesn't he punish them? Why doesn't he judge them? But he actually doesn't. In fact, he doesn't even seem to reprimand them. He doesn't tell them, repent first, and then I'll give you a son. He just blesses them with a son. And he blessed the son that was born out of wedlock because that is who God is. That is the God that we see in Jesus Christ. He's not transactional in terms of, if you're really good and do everything I say, then I will bless you. But if you don't do everything I say, then I will curse you and I will curse your children and I will curse your children's children. He blesses in spite of our own sin and our own brokenness. For the past five weeks, I've been trying to present a picture of God that might be different from what you have been taught or what you have believed I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's made you think and ask questions. In the beginning of this journey, I spoke about the fact that the goal of the Christian life is to know God. The goal isn't to become like Jesus because that will never happen. The goal isn't that I have all my doctrine and all my theology right. The goal is to know God. Richard Rohr says it this way, the goal is union with God. When I finally came to the understanding that I could love God and not fear Him, that became a whole lot easier. When I understood that God wasn't angry with me and pronouncing judgment on me, I could begin to learn what it means to be in union with Him. And when I understand that God wasn't pronouncing judgment on those around me, and I realized that I didn't have to either, I began to learn how to really love people. I don't know where you are in your own spiritual journey, but here's what I know. God is not angry with you. In fact, the opposite is true. He loves you desperately. He's not wanting to pronounce judgment on you because of your brokenness or your lifestyle or the choices you have made. He loves you and wants you to live a life that is joyful and whole and complete. He wants you to live in shalom. Next week, we're going to take a bit of a change of tact. I'm sure for some of you, I've brought up questions around the Bible itself, and you might wonder if I even believe it. Well, I want to address that next week. Is the Bible inerrant? 
Are there mistakes and contradictions? And if there are, does that render everything else as completely useless? And what did Paul mean when he said that all Scripture is God-breathed? And why is this book so confusing? So I'm really looking forward to tackling this huge subject together. Please, if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to subscribe. Don't forget to share it with anybody that you might think will find my rants as beneficial. Also, drop me a note on social media if you get a chance. I'd love to hear for you. All the links are on my website, skipcollins.com. So that's it for this week. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Shalom. Shalom.